Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike G. And today, we're talking about the top five lessons learned on the Go Rig Challenge. Hey, if you're just tuning in on IG, we're live right now on uh, Phil Craft Survival's page. Uh, also, we are talking about the Go Rig Challenge. And if you're not familiar with the Go Rig Challenge, what it was, was, you know, we have at Phil Craft Mobility and PhilCraftMobility.com. We took a truck platform and decided to bug out in a scenario from Prescott, Arizona to the border of Canada, which is about 1,400 miles. And the whole premise of the Go Rig Challenge is actually to prove a survival bug out scenario with a mobile platform. You know, a lot of people have this thinking uh, that their bug out vehicle built out is going to, you know, be sustainable. It's going to be reliable for the worst case scenario. And we kind of wanted to test that. You know, a lot of people fall in love with these tricked out rigs that have all the cool bumpers and all the cool kit and equipment. But the reality is they're not truly capable of bugging out without support. Meaning, let's just take the worst case scenario. Let's say the worst case scenario is an EMP, electromagnetic pulse attack. Essentially, a wave of energy that shuts down all the electricity and all the electronic devices in the country, depending on the, you know, obviously the geographical location of the attack. But essentially, you wouldn't have anything electronic that would be able to work and operate. And so the fuel infrastructure, the grocery stores, the banks, your vehicle, if your vehicle was made generally around after 1990, then you don't have the capability to be able to uh, utilize that vehicle because it's hooked up to electro um, or microprocessors, um, electric microprocessors that process all the information to get that vehicle to work. So that's the worst case scenario, right? That's the far right of this uh, potential uh, uh, worst case scenario or man-made or natural catastrophe. So now let's just take the, the subtle version of that. The subtle version of that is in Prescott, Arizona, we just got two feet of snow dumped on us. And you would think it's a zombie apocalypse. Walmarts, um, convenience stores, uh, general shopping marts are all shut down. The post office isn't running. And it's just snow. So, you know, generally speaking, natural catastrophes shut down the electricity in America for no more than two to three days. But there has been rare instances where it's been shut down for weeks. If you're in a rural environment in America, you could be shut down for months. Look at Puerto Rico. I mean, Puerto Rico, there's still parts of Puerto Rico that have no infrastructure because they haven't been able to rebuild it. So you have to actually truly ask yourself, you know, your mobile platform is the start point into your capabilities in survival, meaning your ability to move your body, your family, your friends in order to survive is the start point. You know, depending on where you live, you know, a lot of people live in cities. They're, they're essentially located in a large population in the middle of nowhere. But what do you think is going to happen in a worst case scenario that affects that population of people? They're going to be fighting for their resources. And so they're going to be fighting for food, for water, for shelter, for security. And now you have 7 million people in the middle of a, of a city fighting for those resources. And where are you going to go when you have to get somewhere safe? Or you have to bug out. 
And when you bug out, you're going to have to leave that epicenter and potentially escape and evade into a more rural area. Well, the start point to that is having a vehicle, having a mobility platform. So when we looked at the Go Rig Challenge, we wanted to exercise this uh, scenario and then flush out some things that we saw that mattered, things that didn't matter, and maybe some lessons learned along the way. And so this isn't a, a experiment built in paranoia. It's an experiment built in really the way that we live every single day where you know, we, we, we like to control epicenters and, and have these small popu- or large populations in a small area that are working efficiently, that are optimized, you know, that have the right number of gas stations and grocery stores and everything operates smoothly until they don't, until a natural man-made catastrophe comes in there and just shakes up everything and then you're fighting for resources and then you're trying to bug out. So bugging out is the contingency, but the coolest thing I've discovered in this whole venture is the fact that whatever you build out, it just makes your life more convenient. Besides that you're prepared for the worst case scenario, it absolutely makes your life more convenient when you build out your rig uh, prepared for the worst case. So let's, let's look at the top five lessons learned on the Go Rig Challenge. Number one, payload capacity matters. You know, when I first started talking about this, I had Scott Brady from Overland Journal on the podcast, and we were flushing out some different ideas. And one of the things that we discussed in our world travel, because I've been, you know, between me and Scott, we've been to a hundred different countries. I mean, it's insane. Like I've been to Libya, different parts of Africa, Southeast Asia. I've been to uh, obviously Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and all these places they operate moving over land with different types of rigs. You'll see Mercedes, you'll see Toyota. And the commonality in all of them is they all have their rigs built out with a proper payload, meaning they understand what the payload capacity uh, of that vehicle is. And then when they build it up, they don't bog it down with steel bumpers, with things they don't need. What they do is they optimize and make it really efficient because they know how it could affect the off-road potential capability of that rig. So what I've seen in the industry is we potentially, a lot of the times in uh, the overland community, think um, more is better. And so if you have steel bumpers, if you have a steel guard, if you have all these different things you know, stacked up on top of the roof, it makes your rig look really cool sitting in the parking lot but is it really capable? And if you look at the standard SUV in America, the average is around a thousand pounds of payload. And that includes, that includes the passengers. So you take me and George, for example, we're both over 200 pounds. George is like 250. I'm like 225. So now we're sitting at damn near half of the overall load capacity of that vehicle, which means what? Well, what it means is if the vehicle is overloaded and you're, you're pushing a couple thousand pounds because you have you know, the vault system in the back, you have the spare battery, you have the rooftop tent, you have the steel bumpers, you have the skid plates, you have all these things stacked on top of your vehicle, you start to compromise the safety of that vehicle. The first thing to consider is the brakes. I mean, 
if you have brakes that are meant for that vehicle at its low capacity, and then you've overloaded it by a thousand pounds, which is really easy to do, then you're compromising safety. Something else is suspension. There's a reason aftermarket companies sell overland springs for the rear vehicle. The rear of the vehicle, if loaded down, which typically that's where it's loaded down, um, the, the stock suspension setups typically can't handle that load. And so you start to compromise that. What I've noticed is when my Toyota 4Runner, I have a 2016 Toyota 4Runner, it has over 100,000 miles. So in two years, I put 100,000 miles on this rig. And that rig, when loaded down on the rear end, when I start to get in muddy, uh, sandy, any kind of you know icy terrain that's unstable, that rear end starts to sway and swing. And it becomes very unstable. And then if I'm going down hills, my brakes aren't really good at stopping that vehicle. And then you get into places like, you know, Poughkeepsie Gap or um, the California Pass behind Uray uh, and Uray, Colorado. Those, that's unforgiving terrain. You want to risk your life? Just overland there with a really squared away vehicle. Now you load down your vehicle because you think that's the answer and you're potentially compromising your safety. And then it's real because there you fall off a cliff, you're rolling down a thousand feet and there's no room for error on those trails. So we decided to go with a full-size diesel pickup truck. The reason my Dodge Ram 2008 6.7 liter diesel has a load capacity of 4,000 pounds even loaded down with all the staples, the survival, the recovery gear, the fuel, everything. I wasn't anywhere close to the low capacity. So it's meant to handle that much weight. So maybe you should seriously consider opt either seriously consider utilizing the platform you have and then not overburdening it with weight, not using steel, instead using aluminum, streamlining your, um, your recovery gear. Instead of using a steel line, use synthetic line to save weight. And you should look at your rig like you would a long-range rucksack or backpack um, when I'm off the trail. And you should start weighing ounces instead of weighing pounds. And that's truly important. Okay? All right, number two. Without fuel, you can't go very far. Okay, number one, you have to understand that in a catastrophe... Let's just say right now you're listening to this in your vehicle and right now shit hit the fan. Things went really bad really fast. And let's just say it's a natural disaster. Something came in and it swept over like, like this area right now. It's covered in snow. The gas station shut down. Now some gas stations keep their fuel tanks open, but what happens when their fuel tanks run out? Well, if it's a sustained period of time, you're not getting gas. So you know what your current capability is? Your current capability is how much fuel you have in your tank right now. Right now. And then look at your fuel tank right now. You have a half a tank? Okay. How many miles per gallon do you get? That's how many miles you have of mobility to survive in the worst case scenario right now. And let's hope that situation only lasts a day or two. But what if it doesn't? There's many instances in America Right, PNW, for example, the Pacific Northwest, 
is expected to get hit with the largest earthquake it's seen in decades. They're overdue. Let's just say it gets hit with an earthquake today, then a tsunami. What do you think is going to happen to those people? Well, they only have what they have in their fuel tanks, and they only have the range in which that vehicle can travel. So fuel is a start point for mobility and survival. It's important. We got with the guys from TransferFlow, transferflow.com. Awesome company. There's a couple other companies out there that are just as good. TransferFlow hooked us up with a 75-gallon tank that's in bed, that's tied into the existing fuel tank. So I have a 35-gallon fuel tank, a 75-gallon reserve tank. Now I have 110 gallons on board. At 100 gallons, that's about 600 pounds of fuel. But again, I just told you, I have a low capacity of about 4,000 pounds. So now, when you look at my fuel capacity and you look at my range, let's just say I have half a tank, because that's realistic to think about, half a tank. You know what my range is? 1,000 miles. And you know what that uh, equates to in a commute? The average commute being 50 miles per day per person? I can go a month without having to refuel, tank, uh, refuel my uh, gas tank. A month. And so now when I look at my bug out contingency plans, now when I look at, hey, I need to drive from California to Arizona because I need to get the hell out of California because things are falling apart. Now I actually have that capability. So if you don't have the money to be able to purchase a in uh, truck bed reserve tank, or you don't have that capability, let's say you have a Honda Civic. Well, you have an advantage in a Honda Civic. Right? You have the advantage of the miles per gallon, but you don't have the capacity. But you can get gas tanks to put in the back of your vehicle or put at your home and keep those things filled. Gas is the start point for the extension of your range in the worst case scenario. Please take that seriously and please, please be prepared. I went all the way to Canada during the Go Rig Challenge on one tank of fuel. It's kind of weird you know, we talked about in the beginning of this, it's not just contingency, but it's, it's the convenience. It's weird being able to drive 1,400 miles on one tank of gas and not spend, you know, every couple hours stopping at a gas, uh, you know, a, a gas tank or a gas station trying to refill fuel. And so if you have that capability and you live in Montana, well, you could drive around in a rural environment and not have to worry about running out of fuel. Or even if you're in a city environment, you, it, it literally extends your range, makes it more convenient. But again, you have that contingency in place, and that's important. All right. Top five lessons learned on the Go Rig Challenge. Number three, power with the sun. Look, a lot of people ask me, they said, hey, why are you running solar panels? Like, what's the point of that? Well, I'll tell you one thing. When you're driving in a vehicle and you're depending only on that vehicle to operate, and I did this in the middle of wintertime, you do not want to fuel or feed your auxiliary power requirements off your main battery. You don't want to compromise or take the chance that the main battery you're going to be pulling power off of, and then when you go to start that vehicle, it's not going to start because that's your lifeline. And so what I tell people is, look, a 200-watt panel, a 28-watt panel powers all your electronic accessories. And yes, even in the worst-case scenario, 
where you lose all infrastructure. You know what you'll still have? You'll still have that GPS working. Because as long as those satellites are in the air, you will have a GPS signal. And so if you run like, you know, if you run uh, a map-based software uh, on like offline lap maps on your iPad, you still have access to that. Now you can navigate the world as long as you have power to that device. You're able to see where you're at and where you need to go. And that's really important because I don't know about you, but I don't carry, you know, a, a novel encyclopedia version of maps everywhere I go. But you could carry that literally in an iPad. And so when it comes to powering devices, uh, I use a company called Off Grid Trek. It's a Canadian-based company. And Off Grid Trek, we're actually going to become a dealer. I, got, I actually got to sign that today to become a dealer for Off Grid Trek to sell their 200-watt and 28-watt panels. Because I could throw it up in the dash and charge my iPad, charge my cell phone, charge my GPS, and all these things that I need to charge. My, you know, I run a Garmin Phoenix 5X. It's the best watch I've ever seen because I could, I could look at altimeter, track my steps, the calendar, my heart rate, everything on the fly. Well, it requires battery, uh, battery power, and I need to recharge it. Well, I'm not going to tie this into my battery power on my vehicle. I'm going to ensure that I'm able to do this um, and separate my main compartment battery from my auxiliary battery. Something else that I did is I ran a National Luna reserve or auxiliary spare battery in the back of the truck bed, which meant that my electric heaters, my lights, all the things that I was running were ran in the back of the truck bed and able to power everything. But it was, it was utilizing the alt, um, alternator to be able to recharge that battery. The greatest thing about having that backup is not only did I have a way to charge accessories, but I had a backup battery just in case things went wrong. And that's really important. Okay, so the next one, insulate to survive the elements. Look, insulation is going to allow you to stay warm. If you get warm, you could stay warm. A lot of people forget that the vehicles that they drive in every single day are not insulated to provide shelter for an extended period of time. A lot of the time, these vehicles are built to deaden noise. And then they're not meant to, to particularly uh, contain heat because you have a heater. You have a heater that's blowing on you, and you don't have to do that for an extended period of time. So they don't over-insulate that vehicle. So if you actually take your door panel off, there's a small piece of insulation in that, and then the rest of it's steel, and then an open gap of space. So let's take the worst-case scenario. Let's say you're a, your truck or car breaks down in the middle of nowhere in the middle of wintertime, in a snowstorm. How are you going to survive? Well, just keeping the door shut and then expecting to live inside that vehicle and stay warm, if you don't have sleeping bags, wool blankets, or a, a means to insulate yourself inside that vehicle, you will eventually freeze to death because the vehicle temperature inside that vehicle will eventually get down to freezing. And the insulation in it isn't good enough in order to sustain your survivability. In fact, if you get inside your vehicle first thing in the morning, it's cold. It's cold because nothing was insulated. You actually have to start your vehicle and then you have to warm it up. 
Most of that heat's coming from the heater core through the vents, but it's not insulated heat. You're losing a lot of that heat through the glass, through the weak insulation in the doors, the cracks, and everything else. So if you truly want to turn your rig into a go rig or to a bug out rig, you need to insulate your rig. And so if you have a Toyota 4Runner and you're living inside of your Toyota 4Runner, you need to in- insulate it better than it currently is. You need to take Reflectix and cut it in the dimensions of your windows and then be able to Velcro that up so that way you could keep the cab warm when it's warm. Going back to that worst case scenario, let's say the vehicle isn't able to run or let's say the vehicle is able to run and you turn on the heat. Well, now you're working off that fuel um, that you have and hopefully you have a lot, but if you don't, you could run it for periods of time if it's insulated, turn it off conserve the battery power, stay insulated, stay warm, and then turn it on when you need, need to periodically. And you could partition your fuel, your battery, and then keep yourself warm as a shelter. Remember, exposure is the number one thing that kills people uh, in survival catastrophes. Exposure to the elements. Because people get outside, they think everything's cool, and the next thing you know... The, the temperature plummets, and if they don't have the way to retain their core body temperature, they become hypothermic, and they go into shock, or they go to sleep, and then they die. If there's other trauma associated with that, like bleeding, your core body temperature drops, and if you can't retain that, again, you go into shock, you go to sleep, and then you die. And so it's very important to retain your core body temperature. On the Go Rig Challenge, we took the truck bed. We insulated the truck bed. We started off with Kill Mat which deadens the sound. Then we laid down Reflectix, which is just an insulation barrier. There's other ways you could do it. And then we put subfloor and plywood down. Now when we have the electric heater going, yeah, we lose a lot of heat in the best top, soft top that we opted for, but we retain a lot of heat in the back that's necessary for survival. Please think about that. Even if you drive a Toyota 4Runner, you could easily pull those panels introduce insulation, and then have a setup to where you could sleep in the back of that rig and do so uh, a long duration in the worst case scenario. All right, the next one is your tires are like your shoes. You know, I wrote an article about this and I said, hey, have you ever ran a marathon in the snow in flip-flops? The answer is probably not because most people wouldn't do that. So the same question can, can be asked um, in the type of tires that you have on your rig. You know, when I did this off or this go rig challenge and I was off road and on road in different environments in sub freezing uh, temperatures, I realized how important tires are. If you grew up in the northern part of the country in, in and around snow, you know how important it is to have the right kind of tires. If you have the right tires, it sets you up for success. I ran MTs, mud terrain tires, from another company not associated with Falcons or Wild Peaks. I am currently running the Falcon Wild Peak AT3W, which is rated for winter uh, uh, driving. What I noticed about the MTs is the colder the temperature got, the harder the tires got. And so it was like I was driving on bricks. And then if ice collected in between the pieces of tread, then I was driving on a sheet of ice. And so it's very important to understand not just your tires, but the air pressure in which you drive your tires, and then the recovery process 
of fixing your tires on the fly. Look, let's say it's the worst case scenario and you're bugging out from Prescott, Arizona to Canadian border. What do you do when you lose a tire? Well, I actually lost a tire on the trip coming back. And I was in Salt Lake City, Utah. One of my wheels, which is a 20-inch wheel at the time, got cracked on the edge of the lip. And that crack led to air leaking out between the tire seal or the bead and the wheel. It's something that actually I've never experienced before. And so I didn't have a punctured tire. Fix a flat wouldn't have worked. And I had a cracked rim. So I was running a 20-inch wheel that's full size. And now I have to figure out a way to fix this. So what I did was I used a portable um, device to fill up the tire. I actually put a uh, fix-a-flat in so I could see where the leak was coming from and realize it was coming from the wheel or in between the wheel and the tire. And so I filled it up where the rim was off the tire. And then luckily I took it to an auto uh, shop that was able to get that wheel in stock. I didn't carry a full-size spare with me because my thinking was, you know, if I carry a full-size spare, it's going to weigh me down. So I don't need that. But I do have Fix-A-Flat. I do have a portable air compressor. And then I have all the patch kits and uh, tire repair kits that I, that I uh, need. But the reality was I wasn't uh, prepared for that one instance, that one um, scenario that set me up for failure. The solution, one, is I got away from a 20-inch uh, wheel. The larger and the wider your wheel is, the more chance it has um, to become dislodged or disconnected from the wheel bead or the tire bead from the wheel, which means you'll strip the wheel off the, uh, uh, or strip the tire off the wheel, right? You also have the chance, like me, of damaging the outside of the wheel, the, the lip of the rim, which, which happened to me, which created a leak in between the tire and the wheel. Also, weight is a consideration. So I went with a smaller wheel. I went with a Raceline 18-inch wheel that's, that's uh, 18 by 9.5, so it's skinnier and doesn't stick out. And then I went with a fatter tire. I went with a 37-inch by 12.5-inch um, by 18-inch tire, the Wild Peak AT3W from Falcon. And I'll tell you what, it's night and day. It's completely different. I also will carry a full-size spare, an air compressor, and then everything that I need to be able to fill that thing up and repair a, a flat on the fly. The worst case scenario for me was me being on the Canadian border in the middle of nowhere and having to repair uh, that wheel. I would have been in a bad situation because the, the closest shop would have been 100 plus miles away and I basically would have had to ride on a rim which would have created more damage and potentially damage to the truck. So a lot of lessons learned there. All right, guys, I hope you like the five top reasons. Uh, those are the top five. There's a lot more, but those are, are the five that I could uh, communicate in the short term to be able to you know, provoke thoughts and get you guys used to those. I'll take a couple of questions on IG before I get off, but I wanted to tell you guys about the Go Rig Challenge Part 2. If you're tracking our social media, our Philcraft Mobility, or Philcraft Survival, or even my personal page, you'll know that we have a booth, booth P48 
at Overland Expo West. I can't wait. I'm so excited about that because I love the show. I love the community and I love um, providing education and then resources for the right equipment um, uh, with that community. And we will have the Go Rig Challenge Part 2 vehicle on display there. What I'm thinking is a motorcycle, an overland motorcycle build out and utilizing the same format, except we will build a network. What I think is a cool thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to get um, Mutiny Metals to design silver and gold coins, small coins with a Philcraft logo on it. And I'm going to use that to build a network on um, and, and waypoint it and, and geolocate it to where I could move in that vehicle and go from position to position and barter and trade. You know, this is a special forces Green Beret thing where we link up with partisan or auxiliary forces in order to facilitate our movement. But in survival, you're going to have to do that. If you want to survive, you can't do it in isolation. You have to do it with a proper network. So what would be cool is I'm driving along and I don't have the fuel to get to the next spot, but I've pre-coordinated with John in Salt Lake City. And then I trade him a gold Philcraft coin for fuel, for food, for lodging in order to facilitate that movement. And then I geolocate it, right? I lay it out in a schematic and develop my network where we are interchanging and bartering for survival setups where, you know, John goes, hey, you have fuel, I'll trade you fuel for food. You know, you have chickens, you have cows, you have whatever that's a resource, and now we have a network of survivalists. This is my long-term objective with the tribe. If you guys are interested, we have a monthly and annual tribe subscription. Uh, the biggest thing it does for you, it gives you a huge discount at fieldcrosssurvival.com, but also taps you into the expos that spring and fall, and then sets you up for things that we have in the future, like the, the social media or the social network through the tribe. You know, my, my goal and vision next year is to be able to geolocate and create an application, a Philcraft app, where you could link in and communicate to like-minded people who have resources, and then you can build a network in the worst-case scenario. And it doesn't have to be a worst-case scenario. I mean, you could be a, or it could be a worst-case scenario, but imagine you're in Northern California and there's a wildfire, and now you're displaced. Well, now you have a forum, a network, a tribe full of people that you could barter with in order to facilitate your survival. In order to say, hey, hey guys, um, just let you guys know I got, you know, I'm evacuated from my house. Is there any tribe members that could uh, facilitate? And yeah, absolutely. Come stay with me. That's no problem. So the, the Go Rig Challenge Part 2 will be a long-range recon long reconnaissance. I'm so used to saying that a long-range movement via a motorcycle. Something else that we're going to highlight is the vehicle equipment that we're coming out with. If you guys haven't seen it yet, we have the modular visor panel. The modular visor panel is a means in order to carry your basic first aid equipment, including your tourniquet, within arm's reach in your vehicle. It actually goes on your visor. It fits on the back of your headrest to allow you to grab it in the event there's a, there's a rollover or an accident, or you're facilitating somebody else's survival by rendering first aid. You can grab that in a crunch and get to work. It allows you to carry your, our, our basic hemorrhaging response kit, our BHRK, inside of that um, 
that pouch. You can also carry that pouch and rip it off and apply it to the, the back of your everyday carry or everyday mobility panel pack on the back of your seat or stick it inside your go bag on the fly. You know, also what's uh, cool about that MVP is you could pull it off and turn it into a low-vis X-harnessed chest rig to where you could take your med kit on the go. And so when we talk about the Go Rig Challenge 2, we're going to do the same thing but build it out for motorcycles, including panniers, including ways to carry med and survival and everything else that you need. We might even get into extended range fuel tanks for vehicles, including motorcycles. And then we'll have that motorcycle on display in our booth um, at the Fieldcraft Mobility booth at Overland Expo West. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you're tuning in to the IG side, I'm going to answer a couple questions. I saw a couple of them. It said, uh, how much weight would you dedicate to vehicle maintenance slash emergency kit? Thanks for that question. It depends on the vehicle. You know, a lot of vehicles, uh, let's say you have a small uh, uh, car, for example. Well, you know, if you're a small car, like you say you have a Honda Civic, it's running on a steel wheel with a small spare tire, you can get away with um, a tire repair kit and a small portable uh, air compressor that weighs about a couple pounds. Now, if you're talking about a, a, a full-size truck, that obviously change, changes with the extension of that. We have different recommendations for maintenance and emergency. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be launching more of that stuff in forums and uh, um, in blog posts on philcraftmobility.com, uh, but it varies on vehicle to vehicle. I would say when it comes to maintenance and emergency, that is not where you want to skim your weight. It's other means that you could go and, sk- and skim that weight. For example, if you're putting steel bumpers on your vehicle, a lot of times you don't need a lot of steel. Now, I run steel on my 4Runner because there's a threat of me hitting big game in Arizona and Colorado and the areas that are off-road. So if I hit a, an elk, a cow, or a bull, that's going to devastate the front end of my vehicle. So I'm going to need steel on the front end with a loop of some kind to be able to protect the radiator and the front in- end of that engine. But if you're living in, you know, in, the, in North Carolina where your biggest you know, game threat is a small whitetail, then you don't need that. You could get away with aluminum and save the weight. So it, it truly depends, but uh, thanks for the question. How much water or food should you uh, keep in your vehicle in case of emergency? Anthony Travis underscore, great question. So we recommend a minimum of three days worth of food or 72 hours is what we operate off of. When I was a sniper in special operations, our typical operations, even long-range missions, were set at a minimum of 72 hours, meaning I had enough food and water to operate for 72 hours. We carry our Mountain House three-day kit, which includes three days' worth of chow in a small container, and then we also have um, portable ways or means to carry water. One of the the great things to do is you know, if you have a uh, gallon of water, have a gallon of water. That's fine inside your vehicle. And then in addition to that, have the ability to retain that water, which is that gallon container, and then purify it. Our Philcraft Survival Minimalist Kits have a small container, which is a 0.5 liter container with chlorine dioxide, which allows you to purify any water that you come across. The reality is in America, you're, you're, 
it's rare unless you're in the middle of the desert to not find a place that has some source of water. And so if you have a source of water, that doesn't mean it's purified. It, it could be contaminated. So at least have the ability to contain it, uh, maybe a bladder or a container, a Nalgene bottle, and then a, way, a means to purify it. Uh, we even additionally recommend a means to filtrate it. You know, that's why we recommend carrying shemogs wrapped around the top of your headrest because a shemog could protect you from the wind, the dust, um, the sun, but also provide a means to filtrate water if you find it in a source that might have uh, contaminants in it. So great question, uh, by the way. All right, guys. Hey, I hope you like this podcast. It was a shorty, but goody. Uh, PhilCraftSurvival.com, PhilCraftMobility.com. My personal IG handle is Mike.A.Glover. Appreciate you guys tuning in. This is a sponsored free podcast. If you're interested in, uh, in providing support to the podcast and you got a Venmo, it's at PhilCraft, at FieldCraft, one word. We appreciate all the support that we get. It helps us do things like fly, fly Jim Miller into town and do a podcast with him. Jim Miller is a USC lightweight fighter, hunter, he also does the uh, carnivore and uh, the uh, keto diet um, because he's, he's been afflicted with uh, Lyme disease. He'll be in the house on March 9th uh, assisting Raul Martinez during a combatist course March 9th here in Prescott, Arizona. In addition to that, we'll have him on the range on the 10th in Chino Valley for a carbine gunfighter. So again, guys, thanks for the, uh, tuning in. Appreciate all the support. Uh, until next time, stay alert, stay alive. 